I own you, Amor. You belong to me. Look at me. If you don't look at me when I talk to you, I hurt you. You step off this mat, I hurt you. If you lie to me, I'm gonna hurt you. Now, now, look at me. Look at me, Amar! Good morning, everybody, and welcome to week four of the readings for Forensic Psychology. Um, this reading's really important, um, and I, I, I think it's one that you're, um, I hope, going to enjoy, because it's not so much about just kind of the science or, or a scientific study. It's almost more of the story. Um, and so to start off this week's lecture, uh, or, or this week's reading at least, um, I, I inserted a short clip from Zero Dark Thirty. Some of you may or, or may not recognise that. But you'll have seen there a kind of snapshot of this CIA um, uh, interrogation programme, kindly called a torture programme in this paper here. And there's so much in this area, and in this debate. Um, and, and the reason that I... I, I like this paper is that it, it at least tries to show the wider kind of context as to how things came to be because let's take a moment and think about that scene that you've you've just you've just looked at and, and some of the contents that we'll look at in this class this idea of kind of some of these deprivation uh, and very physical techniques that are being used at the time they were being used under the auspices of being psychologically accurate and a psychologically uh, developed program from some senior psychology consultants from the uh, American Psychological Association that I'll talk about a bit wider later. So take a moment and think about that. Think about the kind of the interaction you just saw, the, the situation, the, the, the narrative, the tone, the fact that the guy is being strung up to the walls. And ask yourself, how does psychology justify that? And, and, and I think now it's very easy to look back on this program and think to ourselves, well, obviously, there's, that doesn't seem to work. But at their time, there was a, a path that psychology or the psychologists went through in which they sincerely believe that that was the correct avenue to go. And, and we'll see some of that in our um, note to self-work out how to get my emails to not come up on my screen. Um, we'll see some of that kind of throughout the, the, next, uh, the next week or so of courses. So the reason I chose this paper is really that it, it, it talks about how that came to pass before Shane kind of moves into the, the psychology of perhaps why it, uh, it, it isn't uh, a very effective way of, of achieving the ultimate goal. And I think that's always important. You know, one of the things I always ask my students when we talk about interrogations is what is the goal of an interrogation? And the goal of an interrogation is to extract usable intelligence. Um, if the goal of an interrogation is to inflict harm, that's a slightly different interrogation. Um, but in most of these, the goal is to get someone to yield information that they have or to, to honestly tell you that they don't know the information. And so we kind of find ourselves questioning whether 
the programs developed uh, that we see so often are the most effective ways of doing that. So Shane kind of starts off, uh, actually grounding it is his title comes from Zero Dark Thirty, but basically talking about kind of how torture is portrayed. And this links into a very expansive media narrative. Um, popular media narrative and actually kind of news-based media narrative about this idea that he kind of says, you know, that there is a psychological concept of breaking someone and that, you know, if you break them physically, you unlock them psychologically. And that kind of, as we'll see throughout the paper, isn't quite um, the actual truth of the matter. And that's kind of what he, what he, what he goes on to, to kind of unpack. Now, he starts off with quite an interesting point about kind of, you know, um, torture, as he's calling it. There we go, someone else sending me an email. Um, come on, let me just delete my emails. There we go. Right, hopefully that'll fix that. We're learning as we go, folks. Um, so basically, torture is not a post-9-11 phenomena. Um, in fact, if anyone wants to read my book uh, on the topic, don't bother. Um, you would, in fact, I actually don't even think it made the final cut, but I wrote an entire chapter uh, once at some point in my life on this idea that the origins of interrogation programs are really interesting because you can track it back. There's a, a thing called the London Cage, which is a, a UK detainee facility for World War Two, And you can read the book and the, the guy. I want to say the man's name is Mad-Eye. It isn't Mad-Eye because that's Mad-Eye Moody from Harry Potter. But but it, it's close. It's like Tin-Eye or something like this. And he's this like rogue interrogator. And his method was, you know, pure friendship. Um, however, if you look at some of the kind of the French Algiers Wars, you'll see there that, you know, far more, um, you know, torture uh, based approaches were used. So what the early parts of this paper are doing here, and, you know, kind of pages four and five, is basically just talking about across history, you know, there has been this kind of dark force of uh, inhumane treatment of uh, detainees with a goal to eliciting information from them. And what the historians kind of get into large debates uh, as to is kind of sometimes the presence of this um, and then kind of its effectiveness, because sometimes these, these old cases, you know, they yield stories of effectiveness. Uh, and sometimes these old cases, they yield stories of, you know, the importance of rapport and friend uh, and, and kind of friend based approaches. So he's just kind of really, I think, contextualizing this idea that war and interrogation go hand in hand and, and can often open the door to more um, to, to sterner forms of, of interrogation. And the reason for that is often the pressure and the immediacy and the, and, the, and the stakes, to be honest. You know, these are, you know, these are lives on the line. You know, what James Mitchell calls later in the, in the paper a ticking time bomb scenario. You know, there's a bomb about to go off and you have 10 minutes and the person in the room may, uh, may know the answer to save all these lives. You know, you don't get that culmination of stresses very often in this world. Um, and in doing that, it's that kind of, you know, that, 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 that microcosmic kind of experience there that so often leads to the justification of extreme measures. And any of the kind of the ethicists or philosophers will be able to talk kind of at length about why that, um, that may be. So that's kind of what Shane's kind of walking us through here. And then what's really interesting around page six and page seven is basically he talks about how early on, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, 
the narrative started shifting towards uh, a policy or um, kind of justifications for the use of you know, enhanced interrogation techniques or more extreme methods of national security. It's a really good book about this actually called Tortured Logic and it's by Erin Keynes is the second author. Joe Young is the first author. It came out this year basically about kind of, you know, the the, 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 the population support for the use of torture. And it's things like this. It's kind of so this really nice uh, Vice President Cheney quote. Cheney, I think, was played by uh, Christian Bale, I believe, in that movie. Unbelievable portrayal, that really good, very good movie. Um, we also have to work through the dark side, if you will, right? And then at the bottom, it says it's vital for us to use any means at our disposal, basically to achieve our objective. And actually, if you look um, at the uh, George W. Bush policy writing, there are some certain executive orders he issued in the aftermath of 9-11 that basically lifted the legal... Uh, the legal restraints on how they could treat or or um, how they could treat uh, prisoners of war, and that's kind of what this is talking about. In fact, there's a very interesting um, presentation I once organised uh, for a group in DC called the Washington Center. Soft plug, I, I advocate that for all. Um, basically, a Boston-based lawyer, and I can share the case, but he did a pro bono case to get, I think, one man released from Guantanamo Bay. Uh, one or three men from Guantanamo Bay who had been wrongly picked up um, in Algeria, I believe, by the CIA. Um, and in order to get them released, it took it became the largest pro bono effort in the history of their firm. I think the legal costs were in the region of $320 million to get three people um, released from Guantanamo Bay who, who weren't there. And a lot of that is the kind of the legal... Um, uh, alterations that were made to kind of the the rules of combat that allowed people to basically be swept up, kind of fall into this Guantanamo black site area, and then um, the George W. Bush policy actually removed their status, I believe, as a human, um, which allowed them to kind of be be subject to these these kind of um, these methods. So in kind of pages seven, eight, um, and nine, um, you kind of go through what was basically the early. Um, recruitment of the psychologist called James Mitchell, and he's very, very important. Um, and we're going to learn a lot more about him in the in the lecture on this, actually, where we kind of um, we actually get to hear his story. He was quite a secretive character um, until about 2017, where his kind of name was released, um, mainly because uh, people were taking him to court for all of the things he did. Um, but basically, uh, he then kind of came out and was, you know, wrote a book where he refers to himself as the architect and, and Vice did a very good interview that I'll hopefully show you. And he kind of talks about his role here. But this is basically about the recruitment of, of Mitchell and, and Jesson and kind of um, how they, uh, they came to pass in terms of kind of creating a interrogation model. Okay, so in the pseudoscience of torture section, what we basically come to is the kind of the origins of the the scientific argument for why torture should work. Now, th th there's no realm in which it was kind of the torture program or the interrogation program was created without a backing in science. You know, it's not that they just decided this was a good idea. They actually crafted together um, a kind of a scientific justification for why what they thought they were doing should work. And basically what a lot of people talk about is the kind of the reverse engineering of the SEER program. So the idea that 
any if any of you are, are military or, or no military um, also have an interest in military you may be aware it's a kind of survival evasion resistance and escape program which is kind of a, a four or five day long program for advanced soldiers where they basically they are uh, they are dropped kind of in a field and they have to evade capture they are always eventually captured and then they are interrogated and they have to resist the um, the interrogation so there's this big kind of army interest basically in the offensive and defensive use of torture and what it centers on is this idea of learned helplessness the idea that if you if you if you become helpless that's a very bad state so you want to defend against that for your own soldiers and you want to create that if you will in enemy soldiers because hopefully in theory when they're helpless um, they are more likely to uh, submit or give information to you and so that's kind of what 10 and 11 uh, 12 and 13 kind of talk our way through is they basically talk about how Mitchell discovered the concept of learned helplessness uh, from Martin Seligman um, and how he kind of operationalized that um, into his kind of thinking and teachings on kind of the interrogation program and how and what it was basically trying to achieve. So I think almost as learned helplessness as your dependent variable. And, and all of the tactics are therefore independent variables. So all of these behaviours create learned helplessness. And you can see it in the scene at the start of the at the start of this video. You know, the way he talks to the individual. I, I think it's in that scene, or possibly one of the few minutes later. You know, kind of I own you, I control you. You know, I am everything to you. You have no power. And it's about creating basically a, uh, this this idea that the individual has no control over their existence and therefore their behaviors and that's kind of what learned helplessness is so here we're talking about the kind of the basis of learned helplessness but also kind of what it does in the real world which is that it creates you know depression learned helplessness is a, is a significant risk factor for depression and the, the loss of belief that you control your own life and your behavior is a is not a not a good thing you know we, we normally overexert our feelings of control so creating that is normally linked with a, a, a range of of negative outcomes and it, it, it's actually a sad it's a it's a sad story because martin seligman was once the um chair of the american psychological association and he runs you know what is referred to as positive psychology you know psychology for the greater good um so it's become a much a uh, very interesting kind of wider battle the idea to see his work be used in this way and if anyone's mildly interested there's a lot of debate as to how much he was involved if at all from you know he gave a presentation on learned helplessness in a defensive sense um and people have questioned how involved he was in the use of that theory for the offensive sense he says absolutely not zero and, and some other people have written that he, he kind of was um so here we go what was really interesting is um so what I, I just highlight a few things. I've started doing this on some of these papers. Just, just really key points. So this basically is talking about Mitchell's kind of creation of the program um, and kind of, you know, putting it all together and kind of, you know, how he was kind of training this, this kind of, um, this interrogation program. But what's so interesting at the bottom of page 14, it's a simple throwaway sentences. This conference took place in, Ju in July 2003, nearly a year after Mitchell had personally tortured Abu Zubayeh, and just a month after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had retracted information on a plot he'd provided to stop being waterboarded. So there's two things. This sentence is important to unpack for a few reasons. Firstly, 
a year after Mitchell had personally tortured someone. So to think about that, the psychologist who is creating the program is also the psychologist doing the torturing. I think I think ethically we can all agree that's a problem. Uh, also probably makes him a bit biased. But what they're really talking about here is that Abba Zubayev famously gave no information. Uh, I think I'd have to check on this. Uh, it's something I'll bring up in class. There's a Time article called Patient 23 or Detainee 23. And I think it's Abu Zubayev. And you can read the transcripts of his torture. And it is it is harrowing, if we're being honest. Uh, uh, and then Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, famous mastermind of 9-11, uh, basically retracted information to stop being waterboarded. There's a Senate report uh, led by the Obama administration that came out, I believe, 2014, in which they looked at all of the public claims of the effectiveness of this program and counteracted them with the actual real reports, which showed that in most cases it didn't yield any information whatsoever. So a few things here. Firstly, Mitchell is at a conference in 2003 saying how well it works after he's done it and after we know a few major cases of it not working. Um, and, and, and secondly, that there are these kind of you know, high profile instances of, of, of it famously not working. Um, and then we just uh, the highlight at the top of page 15, really, um, that it, it, basically what Amara is saying here is that basically if you just look at the, the logical construct of the development of the CIA interrogation program, it basically just falls through. Like it doesn't have any testing. It's not so much that it doesn't have any testing. That's something I might I'll cover next week. But it's the idea that logically it makes no sense if you would just map out the kind of the fundamental constructs of it. And that's something that we're going to move to as we kind of get into um, page 16. Um, and then I just highlight a couple more things on, on page 16 here. One, just that this uh, CIA torture program cost them $80 million. That's how much they paid uh, Mitchell and Jensen. In fact, if anyone has watched, and I've assigned it this week as a optional viewing for those who possess Amazon Prime, but on Amazon Prime, there's a, a video called The Report, um, and it's got Adam Driver, famously portrayed Kylo Ren, um, as the lawyer who kind of goes after the CIA interrogation program and writes the, the very famous report evaluating its effectiveness. And what's really interesting in that movie is the depiction of the two psychologists, Mitchell and Jensen, as core basically money-grabbing psychopaths and there's this 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 clip at the end of the movie that i always find very interesting where they're kind of flying on their private jet sipping champagne joking about selling khalid sheikh mohammed's like underwear on ebay for a quick dollar um it's not a kind uh it's not a kind depiction um not that i in any way think they deserve a kind depiction but there we go so anyway so page 16 17 onwards basically what Omara is is going into basically is the kind of the science on torture. Now, what's interesting here is that there isn't a science on the study of torture because the study of torture you just, it's not something you can study realistically, right? You can't you no one is going to design an empirical study that involves data from CIA black sites or live torture programs and studying the effectiveness of that on information yield. I mean, let's be clear that there's ethical reasons, legal reasons, um, moral reasons, scientific reasons. There's all these reasons that that's never going to happen. But what Omara says is that you don't even need to study torture. You just need to study the brain under duress 
to see how very, very quickly the argument that torture yields information falls apart. And what he basically focuses on is that exact thing he said at the start of the paper, which is the idea that physically breaking you basically opens you up psychologically, right? So you break someone physically and thus their, I don't know, their brain is an open chest for you to loot. Um, what he basically talks about is if you actually look at the brain, the process of deteriorating someone physically creates a state in them where they are psychologically impoverished. And this is something that he talks about here in terms of the, 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 the neuroanatomy of it, if you will. And it's something that I'll talk about in our lectures, kind of showing you almost the behavioral aspects of it. But basically what he's talking about, and I'll highlight again on 18, is basically the stresses employed during interrogation involve assaults on core functioning of brain and body, sleep deprivation, calorific restriction, hypoxia, which is a, a lack of oxygen, and, pred and predator threat, right? Um, stimulating a fear response. And, and anybody knows, this, this is how ridiculous this program is. Anybody knows, right? There is, there is studies with very small children, right? And so when, when children are left alone and distressed, right? Their, their brain enters this kind of uh, hyper-anxious stimulated state. And it releases glucocorticoids. Possibly, I think. that I'm 90% sure that's what it's called. But anyway, they release a thing. Um, science, Neil. Uh, they release a thing. And basically, it targets certain aspects of the brain and it causes atrophy. So if you measure the brain densities of people who have had like really stressful early years and you know relatively stable early years you can see quantifiable differences in their brain structure and it's because of these like early uh early and prolonged releases and early prolonged um stress reactions right it's found in mouse it's found in, it's found in mice it's found in, in children right this is exactly what he's talking about here is basically if you create or cause a long-term stress reaction in someone it morphologically damages the brain, and it damages the brain in places that are directly associated with the tasks that you're then requiring of you. So, so if you then look at, you know, uh, page 19, talking about the extreme stresses, right? They, they result in tissue loss in the brain region, supporting memory, uh, resulting in enduring deficits in explicit memory. By contrast, the volume of the amygdala, concerned with the processing of fear, increases. So if you stress someone out long enough, what you find happens is that the memory part of their brain gets diminished and the fear and anxiety part of their brain gets bigger. So you've, you've, you've shifted the balances there. So he's talking about kind of a morphological change that happens under extreme stress. And, you know, let's be clear, this isn't extreme stress from torture. This is lower levels of extreme stress. So you could almost imagine these findings being kind of, you know, exaggerated. And also they're all happening um, at the same time. Um, and he kind of just walks us through that, uh, through pages kind of 20 and, and, and 21, and basically saying that, you know, kind of, um, that the, 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 that we know that there is significant neurological damage done from extreme stress. And uh, the only thing I highlighted on page 21 here is uh, he basically talks about some of the new developments and uh, the, the remarkable series of field and captive based studies of terrorist interrogations focused on uh, information elicitation and minimizing counter interrogation tactics. That's actually the focus of next week's lecture. So Omara says he's kind of hat tipping us here that, you know, there have been significant developments and we're going to um, go through those next week. But what's interesting, and I'm just going to go back to page 20 because I didn't highlight it or anything, but it, it speaks almost to how illogical it is to believe that enhanced interrogation works. I don't know about any of you, but I myself feel less uh, 
able to function when I'm uh, anxious, right? Or when I'm tired, right? If you're going to take an exam, you don't want to be scared uh, and you don't want to uh, be hungry. Oh, I'm sorry, you don't want to be tired or hungry, to be honest. My wife is a, uh, she's a nurse and she does night shifts. I have seen her try and function after two days of nights, you know, with prolonged sleep deprivation. And to be honest, I don't think she can remember my name half the time after she's sleep deprived. And so this twisted logic that inducing that state will, one, make her want to talk, or two, make her able to construct a, a memory, really flies in the face of basically core scientific principles. And that's really the heart of this whole paper, is you ended up, we ended up in a place where a full a full-on scientific program was developed that if you just broke it down to its logical components is not supported by a single conceptualization or study of the human brain and yet it has been embedded and ingrained in the kind of the the defense narrative and it's really interesting actually because i know that at the start of the article um, Shane, um, Shane talks about kind of, you know, uh, Trump came out and said that he thought we should do a lot worse. It's not really a, it, it's not a, a one political sided thing. I mean, Biden's uh, picks for national security at the moment, people are really worried. People like Mark Fallon, who, uh, who, who wrote a very good book, um, Unjustifiable Means, um, he kind of comes out and points out that all of the national security picks are all involved were all involved in the torture program and all said it worked it's a the amount of groupthink at the senior government levels on the fact that torture was and still is effective is breathtaking when you just think about what the logic of what it's trying to do and that's kind of why i really like this paper because I think in the first half, it's trying to paint the picture of kind of the, the, the social political world around it that got us to that point. Because I think it's very easy to, you know, look back on it and say, well, that, that doesn't seem to work. Um, but the really interesting question was, how did we get to that point? How did we get to the point where that scene you saw from Zero Dark Thirty is viewed as the norm, justifiable, and effective. How did we get to that point? And and that's what I, I kind of I really like about this topic, and I, I really like about this paper. So I really hope you enjoyed it. I, I hope you. Um, Shane's fantastic. I mean, I'm a really really big fan of uh, of, of his work. I mean, he's, he's a neurobiologist by training, so he's the, the perfect person to talk about kind of the effect of stress on the brain. Uh, and I hope it kind of made you think about kind of this 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 idea of what the program's meant to do and kind of what the human brain is, is designed to do and we know does in, in many less stressful states. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, reading. It went a bit long. I apologise uh, for that one. Um, but uh, next week, uh, we're going to go into kind of the, the movement beyond this that was uh, established by Bar Barack Obama 2011. Uh, he kind of uh, wanted us to basically move past the the enhanced interrogation and find out what actually works when talking to very very hostile um terrorists and other high value detainees and that's exactly where we're going to go so i hope you enjoyed this reading i hope you enjoyed the content um i hope you enjoyed my cat meowing in the background um bye, -bye.